Hey everybody, welcome to It's Real with Jordan and Demi. Demi is out today, so it's just me. My guest is one of my favorite comedians. He, uh, if you don't recognize him from the stand-up, you may know him from shows like The Office and Broad City, and of course, his own, The Chris Gethard Show. Here he is, Chris Gethard. Hello. What's going on? How are you? I'm it's great. Nice to see you. I am great. Uh, first of all, you're here. Uh, you have a new comedy special out, Half My Life. I watched the whole thing. Um, it's really great, and I really like that it's, it, there is the, uh, the art from it. Um, I like it because it's not just a stand-up special. It's kind of a, it's literally like a little documentary. Um, so tell us a little bit about making this and why you decided to, to, to do this. Well, I self-funded the whole thing and I shot it at 10 different venues. And I said, let's just take a camera on an actual tour. Like these, these were not set up for the purpose of shooting a special. I said, let's just do it because I wanted to do it my way. I think there's a lot of things that happen at live shows when things go awry that tend to sometimes be the most interesting and funny stuff. And I really try to embrace that. You can't really do that in a traditional special. And even more importantly, I, I was just sort of like, you know, my last one was on HBO. It was in a fancy theater. I was wearing nice clothes. That's what comedy specials usually are. But that's not the reality of a comedian like the other 364 days of the year. It's, I don't care how big you get. I mean, there's some people who have like private jets and tour buses. That's a very rarefied air. Like I had my own TV show on cable for a while and I had an HBO special, but like I still rent a car when I land in Buffalo and I drive myself to Detroit. And sometimes the venues are like weird little off the grid spots and, you don't always know what's coming and there's, and there's ups and downs. So I, I wanted to be able to show what the actual experience of doing comedy is like. And I, I have been very proud because a lot of other comedians who have seen it have been like that, that, that looks and feels like the actual reality of what we do. And you released this through comedy dynamics instead of going with comedy central or Netflix or HBO or something. So, and it's on Amazon prime and Apple music and a whole bunch of different platforms. So tell me about why you decided to go with this kind of distribution uh, system. Well, a big part of it was I wanted to I wanted to do it completely my way. I've always in my career, for better or for worse, sometimes it's been the most valuable thing in my life. Sometimes it's definitely held me back. But I'm always just like I have to follow my instincts. If that means I fail, I fail. I'm more comfortable failing on my own terms than feeling successful on someone else's if I don't agree with it. And this was one where I just knew there was, there was actually a production company that came in and said, we want to produce it. And they're like, and we'll give you all this money and equipment and access to all these resources in the post-production. But they wanted to have someone direct it who I didn't know instead of just my friend who directs like videos for punk bands I like. And I was like, I know this is stupid, but... I'm going to say no to your money and it would have made our lives so much easier. So comedy dynamics is a really great system where they basically get it up on, like you said, Apple and Amazon and Vimeo international viewers. You can access it through Vimeo and all these apps that are on your Roku. And um, it's really this nice middle ground where it's not, it, you know, it, it, it's really DIY in the sense that you get to self-determine a lot of what you're doing 
um, and they kind of help get it onto the platforms that are a little more corporate than DIY usually allows. So I felt like it was a, a really cool system by which I could do something my way, take some chances, let it be rough around the edges. Like anybody watches it, you'll go, oh, the sound is kind of up and down. It's it's not bad, but it sounds different in each venue. It's like, well, yeah, because we didn't have a dedicated sound person. It was like, we'd get to Baltimore and be like, did we hire, we go, okay, it seems like the soundboard here is good. Like we didn't have the money for it. I self-funded it. So a lot of it was in the spirit of doing it my way. And I think comedy dynamics and their, infrastructure really um really supports that so i felt very grateful for them i'm a production guy and when i was watching it one of my thoughts was <laughs> there has got to be so much footage that they have oh yeah know, for all these different sets how many sets come uh stand-up sets were involved in this a dozen somewhere? oh at least i mean um yeah i'm trying to think because we shot at 10 venues and then a lot of the venues we actually did two shows so we have there's just a ton of cutting room floor stuff out there a lot of stuff with the alligators too because one of the sets was just in front of alligators we have a lot of unreleased alligator footage that i'm let's talk about those alligators sure yeah the, sure uh, Gatorland in orlando there's you feeding an albino uh gator um you 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 had this whole you had this whole bit about going to Gatorland and how wild it is and everything and and you and you kind of did stand up for the Gators. My yeah. question is, how what was the level of actual danger when you were immense? This is not a parlor trick. This is not a magician thing. It's not like uh, there's no trick to it. I I applaud Gatorland. Like they found out. I talk in the special about they've. There's kind of three phases to the joke in the special. And, and the second one is about how they found out about the first one, you know? Um, so I was scared they were going to be mad at me. Instead, they got they got a huge kick out of the fact I was talking about them. They're kind of uh, – they, they like sort of doing things their own way and being off the grid too. And we showed up. They built that. We didn't know they were building that fake brick wall with the Gatorland Comedy Club logo. We showed up. Oh, and they like, built you? that. That was not yeah. something your producer. We were like, or, you built you know. a set. We couldn't afford to build a set. Like we were like, you built a set. They're like, yeah, we love it. We love comedy. We love you doing this. And the security. I'm not kidding when I say there's one guy who was about eight to ten feet away from me, who was just off camera, who was like, if they come at you, just get out of here. I got it. And that was it. That was the security. It was me and 30 alligators. It was not shot in a way where people might watch it and go, I guess they're like cutting the fence out of the the um, shot or like, oh, they must, you know, the people with the tasers must be right behind him. Or off, the alligators screen. sedated in some way. Nope. It was legit. It is exactly what it looks like and uh, it, a very bad idea. And mm. really the only time that there was even a discussion of safety that, had any meat on its bones was when I was in the actual pen with Chester, the dog eater, who's like, the, I talk in the special a lot. He's like their most, he, he lives in a pen by himself because he's so aggressive. That was the only one where the guy was like, if he moves towards you, you're heading to that door to get out of my way so I can get between you and him. He's like that door. And I was like, Oh wow. Everything else was, was, um, I picture security guys yeah. having like one arm or an eye patch or something like that. They're just dudes in Gatorland polo shirts, man. That was it. That was it. I, it, it. I guess, yeah, I guess the fact that none of them were maimed was kind of a subconscious 
vote of confidence. I guess, I guess you could say that none of them had been eaten partially. So I guess I felt some safety that I wouldn't be. That was, that was a little reassuring, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of safety, uh, one of the, the, uh, things I saw you in recently was the, uh, class action park (laughs) documentary and which for those of you don't know, it's about action park in New Jersey that Chris grew up going to when he was a young guy and it was just a free for all the rides. There was just no safety. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking, this is crazy. That's crazy. This is crazy. And then you come to the Alpine slide part of the documentary. Oh, and yeah. I, and someone, I don't know if it was you or somebody else goes, this was the, out of all the things, this is the most dangerous, the most insane thing. And I actually have ridden on an Alpine slide. Me and my, Dad, me, my family, and my cousin, we went out to Colorado in the mid-90s for vacation when I was 11 or 12. And me, my dad, my cousin rode down on this thing. And my dad went up on a bank and skinned his entire left side was just like raw, just like burned. And and uh, he just got up and they didn't care. And no. uh, yeah. And it's, so, yeah. It, it's just, it's just the... That, that I didn't, I was not, I was just interviewed in that documentary. I can't claim that I made it, but one of the things that it really highlighted so well, it made me proud to be part of it was just that in the eighties and nineties, it was this very, very strange time where there was, everybody was always yelling at us. Oh, you got to be careful. You're going to get kidnapped. You're going to wind up on a milk carton, satanic panic, like uh, all this stuff. But then in the actual reality of how we lived, adults were letting us do things like go on alpine slides and get like serious second degree burns up and down mm-hmm. our bodies. I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, man, like everything I ever heard was about safety when I was a child. And everything I actually was encouraged to do was completely unregulated and unsafe. Maybe that's why we have a generation of people who are so confused and skittish now that I'm raising a kid too, I'm like, I don't even know how, I don't even know what safety is. I was raised without it entirely. See, you're, you're a few years older than me. And so I feel like you got to enjoy a few more years of the pre freaking out. Everything has <laughs> to be guarded. Everything yeah. has to be closed in kind of thing. So I'm a little jealous of you uh, that I, I got my one little Alpine slide moment that I survived. And it's funny because I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a weenie when it comes to stuff like that. And if I would have known, you know, yeah, yeah, I was, I am too, and always have been. Um, but I, that, that's one of the things that made action. I think why Action Park gets a documentary, where maybe some other um, amusement parks don't quite get there, is that being in New Jersey, it's such a pressure cooker of like toughness and people needing to prove how macho they are. That even a kid like me, who's like a scared, sensitive, artsy nerd, it was like, well doesn't change the fact that at some point you're going to have to go to action park and you're gonna have to jump off that cliff jump and survive and prove you're a man. Yeah. Which is such a backwards attitude. And, but we grew up with it so hardcore and I go, there were rides like that and places like that everywhere. But when you, when you mix it with just sort of the um, sadistic dedication to toughness that New Jersey has always had. Oh boy. Was it a bad, that was a bad combination of, of, factors for sure yeah yeah i uh, i'm a fan of your podcast beautiful and thank you it's a really interesting idea really well executed and even if you don't listen to every episode it's the kind of deal where you can kind of scroll through and if you see a conversation kind of piques your interest you can listen to it 
Um, what do you personally get out of doing that podcast? Why, what do you enjoy about it? Well, first of all, it, it, it exploded and it's been such a big part of my life and my career in a way where I go, I got so lucky and I'm just appreciative of everybody who listens. It really is random phone calls. We don't, we don't um, produce it or screen it too hard. We tweet out the phone number. I talk to people who call very, very light levels of screening. And, you know, at this point we've done between two and 300 of them. And, and uh, I, I've really learned to give people the benefit of the doubt way more than I was trained to growing up. I think I'm a lot more patient. I think I'm a lot more understanding. And even if, even if, I, I just sort of treat most people I meet as if they might be having a really bad day. Like I've gotten so many completely crazy calls about topics that are just mind boggling and regular people tell me stuff they live through where I go, you know, the next time someone cuts me off in traffic, instead of getting furious, I'm just going to assume that person's like racing to a hospital to see a dying loved one for the last time. Or like the next time someone's at a cash machine and they can't remember their pin, instead of just sitting there thinking about what a moron they are, I'm going to assume they might be getting like ransom money for someone because there's been a kidnapping because the show has taught me over and over again. And, and don't get me wrong, some of the episodes, extremely funny extremely strange and charming, but a lot of the ones that stand out, I think have gone really dark and you go, Oh, this is just somebody who just was living their life and then lived through something so wild. Like we've had calls from people who sort of fell backwards into being meth distributors without ever intending to do so. We've had, you know, calls from people who we had a call from someone who went on a first date that ended with her having to be rescued by the coast guard. You hear things like that. We are like, that just happened. You woke up that day thinking, oh, I met somebody on an app. And then the next thing you know, you're being carried above the ocean in a basket dangled from a helicopter. Like this is things happen to people, give people benefit of the doubt. It's made me a much more relaxed, uh, and you've person. seen like me, I do this, I do this show because I like talking to people and listening to their stories. I like to hear what people say. You know, I, I started out as a newspaper reporter, an arts journalist in the DC area. Mm -hmm. And I loved interviewing people, but I hated writing the story. So this is the right. perfect thing. And, and you seem kind of like that. This is what you, uh, one thing you got out of is you enjoy listening to people and hearing their stories. I really do. I feel lucky that I kind of get to be the point person. Like I, I get the calls going, I make the people feel comfortable. And then I've learned more, you know, initially I thought it was going to be a comedy driven project. And I realized, Oh, it's not my, a lot of my job is create some comfort and then get out of the way. And I do, I just really love hearing people's stories. And, um, I, I, I don't know exactly why, cause I'm a pretty socially uncomfortable guy and I'm not, notable and you meet anybody who meets me in real life some you know like I'm, I'm not a notable person but for some reason people find i found that people consistently in this project and others in my life just feel really really comfortable if i set up an infrastructure they feel comfortable putting themselves out there so i go what a good legacy to have you know like what a what a what a good like I sometimes think I go, man, I've had such a strange career and 
I don't even know how to explain it, but I know I'm going to have a pretty cool I feel like everything obituary. you've done is atypical. Your path has been atypical. My life would be easier if I could just say I do blank, you know, but some combination of ADD and 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 manic behavior and not being able to settle for one thing created this thing. And it is a strange path, but I do know that when I get hit by a bus someday, I'll have a cool obituary. And you I always try to remember that. And you'll have an interesting body of work to, for people to yeah. discover. I sometimes stress, I go, man, things would be easier. Like I, I've done, I've done pretty well, but like I lost my health insurance this year cause I didn't book enough acting work. I'm like, man, I'm too many years in and I have a kid now and I'm stressed out and maybe I should have done some easier choices. It would be more financially stable. But then I sit there, I go, yeah, why? So I could like be on a network show when I don't even really watch network shows. Like, my cable show got canceled and I, I had I had not had cable at that point for like three or four years. Like, oh, I got to kind of put my money where my mouth is and remember that the things I make are reflective of the fact that I'm a type of person who doesn't really consume mainstream stuff. So I can't stress too hard if I don't make mainstream money. I have to be okay with that. I have to be okay with that. It's all a choice and I'm proud of it. I'm proud sort of it. going off of that, what role does acting play in your life how much do you care about getting acting jobs do you enjoy being on set i don't want you to like to screw yourself out of jobs by saying i, I don't care about acting but i'm curious as to how seriously you take it how much do you prep for scenes do you write character bibles that that sort of thing i don't take it that seriously it's it's um I tell you what, what always happens to me, because what people don't realize, like there's the fantasy of being an actor and, and some people are great at it. And for some people, it really works for them and God bless them. But I, I have been shocked over the years to realize how boring it actually is in the actual mechanics. There's a lot of hurry up and wait. There's a lot of, you know, we're going to get you to the set at 6 a.m. and you're going to get in your outfit and your hair and makeup and then you're going to sit around for five hours until you do anything. And it's just not how I'm built. So um, I'm not in love with it as much as I am live performing by any stretch, you know, beautiful, anonymous, one-on-one, -on -one, interactive in the moment. Those things have that dopamine kick and that endorphin rush that I just kind of can't get enough of. Um, but what I find over and over again is just when I'm about to give up on, on acting, something will come along where I go, oh, this actually meant something to people or I'm in an environment now that's so cool and challenging. Like I was on a show on, on Netflix last year called Space Force and I just shot two more episodes for the season that's coming up. And I got to that set and I go, man, I'm acting against John Malkovich and Steve Carell and they're super nice and everybody on the set is great. And that show, I'm going to go to bat and say, that show got some pretty up and down reviews, probably bad reviews. If you say, I was scared to watch it. I watched it. I went, I think this show's funny. And it was like the best set I've ever been on. And that wakes me up when I go, oh, this is actually interesting and cool. And I've been really open lately to, to um, looking at more of the independent world and, and seeking it out because it's always kind of been like I do my weirdo stuff in the underground and I'm like this underground comedy institution. And then every once in a while, it'll be like, weren't you the guy who hit Oscar with the pipe on the office? And I'm like, yeah, I do that too. And mm. those are kind of things that, you know, I get to have my cake and eat it too. But also there's some truth to the fact that with me, it's like the acting gigs kind of are for health insurance and pension credits and union status. And I'm that SAG, yeah. Yep. Got to get yeah. those SAG credits. And that's just the reality. 
and I, I don't even feel like I'm being a jerk or biting the hand that feeds me by saying that because I do view myself as an entertainer as like a journeyman and and a worker and my values I, you know I was raised pretty blue collar and uh those are my values so I think there's a lot of pride in that but Every time I'm just about to give up on it, something will come along where I go, this is really interesting. And then I, I'm starting to realize more and more there's there's maybe a whole world of the more independent side of productions that probably has some people with a more similar mentality to me. And yeah, that'll be interesting. But as long as it as long as it gives me health insurance and gives my child health insurance and helps me have some breathing room so that I can do weird specials where I spend money on it and do stand up for alligators. I'm like, yeah, I'll keep doing it. Sure. I'll keep doing it. You, you bring up, I have kind of have a love hate relationship with streaming content. Obviously, yeah. it's great. You can access it. I kind of miss having the episodes of a show spread out over several weeks because it gives you time to discuss. Uh, I, I liked, I remember watching, I loved Mad Men when it was on. And I remember reading like the recaps in between episodes. And I kind of miss those days. But the other thing is, there's a cultural price for streaming shows in that yeah. you don't get the characters and the bits and the jokes don't escape into the zeitgeist the way they do on network or cable or even HBO Showtime. I think a good example I have is the Star Trek shows, the new ones that are on the, the Paramount Plus is, you know, even if you didn't know Star Trek, grew up with Star Trek, you recognize, you knew what Spock looked like, you knew Beam Me Up Scotty, you knew what Jordy LaForge's visor looked like just yeah. vaguely. And I think about it as I don't know any of the characters' names. I don't know their mission. I don't know anything about it. And I feel like that's an issue with shows across the board. They, there's no syndication for these shows. They just kind of, even movies, there's that movie with Mark Wahlberg, the Oblivion or um, Infinity or whatever it's called. And there's just like posters, two guys staring at each other. I'm like, that's what the movie's about, two guys staring at each other. So... How do you feel about the whole, the independence of streaming versus the loss of cultural uh, references? Well, the first thing I have to say is as someone in entertainment, the idea that there's more opportunities for artists to make a living, I can't be mad about that. I can't ever sneeze at the fact that, I mean, when I was starting out, there were a handful of cable networks that did comedy and there were network shows that felt so impossible to get on. Um, so the idea that there's all these places where you might actually be able to scrape together a living, it's benefited me. So I, I do think in terms of being an artist who wants opportunities for artists, I see the value there. Now, culturally, I am with you. It is nerve wracking, right? That like to be a Star Trek fan now, you have to sort of already know about Star Trek and seek it out. I think being a comedian, same thing. Um, so easy to get lost in the shuffle. I, I personally, um, if Netflix wants to buy, work with this, buy some specials, let's do it, baby. But I will say, I think it was 2017 when they started their policy of like, we're putting out 100 stand up specials a year. I think that's really dangerous culturally. I know, you know, and I don't want to be some Luddite old man who's like back in my day. I do know that when, like, when Chappelle's special came out, um, I was killing him softly. I think it was, I was in college and I remember everyone coming to my apartment so we could watch it when it debuted. When George Carlin put out a new special, when we were people, kids, everyone stopped and talked about him. You knew they came the, out. The Chris Rock bigger and blacker was a huge deal. Like so that. many. Yeah. Like, um, and bring the paint, like these things that felt like 
markers of cultural relevance, markers of how you mapped your experience growing up, knowing where you were, when you saw them, who you were with, what they meant to you. Um, so for me, I go, that's great that you're going to put out a hundred plus specials a year in the sense that a hundred plus comedians will have jobs. I don't ever want to be mad about that. As someone who puts out work, is it really special anymore? Is it really special anymore? And then here's what we see happening too. Like I just yesterday was lucky enough. The New York times covered half my life and said, it was an article about, oh, here's five comedians that did really unusual hybrid special docs. It was me, Rory Scovel, um, Carmen Christopher, Josh Johnson, Jessica Watkins. I'm proud to be in that article. That tells you where things are at, right? Like, wow, like there's now an article about five things that are all form breaking mm -hmm. because I think a lot of comedians are sensing you kind of need to break the form or else you're just one of a hundred things. And that's just Netflix. Then there's also HBO and Comedy Central and Showtime and Amazon, all the places that are putting out. My friend Carmen Christopher just put out a great special on Peacock. Like all these places you go, ooh, now having a special doesn't feel like it locks in a level of consistency, safety, or relevancy as an artist like it did. Even it's not as impressive. Ago. I feel like if a comedian says no. they have a special, it's not as impressive. And then look what happens here is a lot of the biggest specials of the past year are things that people put out for free on YouTube. They get millions sure. and millions of views. And I sit here and I go, this is really interesting. There's a part of me as someone who always thinks independently that goes, well, maybe I'll put my next thing out free make it really low cost, low key, but very accessible, sell a lot of tickets on the road. But then what's happening is artists are now settling for working for free. That's the dangerous thing, right? Musicians have been dealing with that for a long time, right? You can get 30 billion streams on Spotify and then every musician friend of mine goes, yeah, 30 billion people, great, I'll get, you get $1,700 for 30 billion or whatever it is, you get like a and fraction of- you gotta of split that between you and the producer, yeah. And yeah. At least stand-ups are selfish people who get to pocket all of your sixth, sixth of a penny for your Spotify stream. But at that point you go, man, like there's all that accessibility, but then to stand out, some people go, the only way to stand out is to do it for free when it used to be a thing that you got paid for, blah, 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 long story short. Now you have to spend more time on the road to sell those tickets. You have to sell t-shirts. Like, right? Johnny, I remember Johnny Ramone famously. It was such a depressing quote. He's a depressing, bitter guy, right? In that Ramone's documentary. But I mean, he's like, I know what I am. At the end of the day, I'm a t-shirt salesman. And it's like, like we're flooding the market with so much art right now that it's hard to it's hard to understand the value of art. So that's tough. And it's part of it is I think on us as artists to be very, very crafty and strategic about drawing lines on the sand and making sure that we don't backtrack as far as being people who make a living and, and, and want to be valued for our work. You know, it's a tough yeah. call. It's a tough call. Chris, you're only, this is mostly a, a music podcast. We, we have mm -hmm. bands. We had Richard Marks on last week. That's who you're, who you're following. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, well, if you've been to a wedding last 30 years, you've heard a few Richard Marks songs. There you um, go. But the last comedian I had on was my friend, uh, Rachel Feinstein. And oh, the she, best. 
she is a lovely person, uh, one of my best friends here in New York. And one thing I asked her was about her first stand-up set. Do you remember your first stand-up set? Her, she said she was like wasted and it was terrible. Do you have a better story than that? I started as an improviser, um, which is, you know, group driven. So when things go wrong, you have six or seven other people there. You can all like blame the other person or get a drink and laugh about it. When I switched over to stand up, it was very, very rocky for me because I was accustomed to a certain level of comfort and success as an improviser. And then I'll never forget, it was a show at a bar called Rafifi, which was like a really important, important in its time room for independent comedy in New York. And my buddy Joe Mandy had been doing shows at UCB coming up to me. A lot of the like alt comics knew I was doing a lot of storytelling. I go, maybe I can do some stand up. Joe puts me on a show and I was so nervous that I kept putting my hand in my back pocket for some reason. This is not a nervous tick that I have. But for some reason, my nervousness expressed itself. But I just kept digging around in my back pocket as if I like couldn't get my wallet out or something. But I was just nervous. And Joe's a really, really good friend of mine to this day, so I don't blame him. But he was hosting the show, and it got uncomfortable to the point where he had to say something. He's like, uh, "I don't know what, you know, my set did not go well." And then go, Joe's like, "I don't know what Chris was looking for back there. I hope he finds it at some point, though." Anybody else hoping he was going to find? People are like clapping because they're like, "What the fuck was he looking for in his pocket?" I, sorry, I don't know if I can say the f word. Yeah, yeah, uh, say what you want. Um, but yeah, I was so nervous that I kind of looked like I was picking my butt the whole time and I got called out for it rightfully. And it was a few months before I had the gumption. There was a part of me, should I just go back to the safety net of the thing I'm good at? But I grew up loving stand up too much and, uh, and, and decided to get back in the ring and, and did you get any laughs though? I mean, did any of the jokes? Uh, pity laughs. Like, is this, that worse or better than silence? Ooh, probably worse. I would say probably worse because you know what it is. It's like the audiences are smart enough to recognize the structure of a joke, and you can feel them going. That sounds like it's supposed to be the punchline. Let's laugh to make this nervous guy feel better. Sure. And that's rough. That's rough. I've played to silence, and it's been hard. Um, and I've been booed off stage many times. Um, many times. I, I can think of, there was one night where I was booed off stage four times in the same night. I was hosting a show. It was wow. a music show and doing comedy on a music bill. That's incredibly hard because music audiences like drink more and everything's loud and everybody who's been to a show knows in between bands, you're used to talking to your friends. So when someone comes out and starts talking on the mic, you don't know what's going on. And I was hosting a show that the Bouncing Souls were headlining. And it was in a 1,500-seat venue. A punk band. Yeah, yeah. It was a punk band. And uh, this crowd was not in the mood for some nerdy guy talking. And my first time out there, they started heckling me. And they heckled me off stage. And it was jarring. And I got off stage. I went, oh, no, I'm hosting. I have to intro three more bands. And I did. And every time they just went bigger. Well, once you do it once, you come out. They're like ready to go. Yeah. You do it once you get booed off stage. You have like a tough night and a funny story. But when you know, oh, this band's rap. When when they come backstage, okay, this is their last song. They're going to break down and get ready because you got to intro the next band. I'm going. Uh, I can just, my palms are sweating just thinking about yeah, having just going, to do that. 
maybe yeah. this time, maybe this time I'll get them. No, now they're having fun booing me. It's now they're not going to give me a chance. Wow. Okay. Demi and I are, uh, Demi, my usual co-host, she, she's not here right now. She's a, she's in a band. She's a really great, uh, she's humble about it, but she's, she's in this kind of like uh trio and they're kind of like a, a bikini kill breeders, throwback kind of riot girl kind of band. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do some showcases around here in New York at, you know, Mercury, Mercury lounge or somewhere. I don't know. But, but uh, um, I was thinking about putting a, a, a comedian in, in between bands, but now I don't think that's do it. Yeah. Do it. It's a, uh, it's the tough. I, I've, I've talked about this with and different comedians have different opinions. I've always been like that, that to me is the toughest gig, but I've also had it go well. And it's like every aspect of stand-up comedy shares that thing of when it goes poorly, it is so lonely and demoralizing. But when it goes great, you get all the glory of it. So I've also now, you know, I've, I've done, I, I can think of another time opening for a band where I was heckled off stage. Um, but I can also think of a bunch of times where I actually did pretty well. And you're like, I got drunk punk fans to quiet down and actually pay attention. And they laughed when I wanted them to laugh. I am a god. Like you get that too. So certainly have a comic on there. Their life is going to be either really tough that night or you might make their life really great. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Chris, uh, Conan O'Brien just ended his run as late night host recently. What do you think his legacy is? You, you were on a show several yeah, times. He's the best. The what's, his what's his legacy as a late night talk show host? He, I, I, can't, I don't think that, I mean, you look at his writing staffs, stock top to bottom with brilliant people for so much of his run. Um, all the bits you remember, but the, th the thing that, cause it's funny. Cause I felt like he did a little bit of an Irish goodbye. I don't know that it got as much press as, as Conan deserves. Conan's. Well, best. I saw these comedians posting Conan I, clips and I was on my Instagram. I'm like, what is this about? And then I, yeah. And, and I, I put some up of mine and you sit there, you go, you look at every comedian who you love and who had their first stand up late night spot on Conan or who the first time they got interviewed on late night shows on Conan. You look at like my corner of the world, like the alt scene, the UCB scene, there are so many comedians you've heard of who I promise you, if they came out of New York in the two thousands, the first they were getting paid was to like dress up as a robot on Conan. I dressed up as a little Dutch boy I played Clay Aiken's body double when I was like 21 years old for Conan show. So many people that passed through the halls there. And the thing about it is it's like, you know, Carson was Carson. It's like godlike, you know, entertainment icon. And then Letterman was this like guy who was poking holes in that and kind of counterculture and subversive. But then what you realize is Conan's the first, Conan is, how would I even phrase it? Conan is the person who cracked open this idea of the comedy nerd and everybody else after that, I think who exists in a time of comedy where like the comedy nerd became a thing, everybody under that umbrella, Conan, Conan was the one we were watching every night. You know, I watched a lot of Letterman growing up but I, I have such fond memories of being in college and 
me and my friends, we'd all be drinking around, like drinking cheap 40s or whatever. And when Conan came on, it would be like you'd leave the TV on with the sound on mute and whatever was on. And then Conan came on. Everybody shut up. We're watching Conan at least at least until the first interview. We got to see the bit tonight, you know, at least that first bit. So Conan was the one. This idea that comedy is this accessible sort of like nerdy countercultural thing that a lot of people can get in on. Conan O'Brien is the god to that whole generation of kids. Everybody who ever took an improv class, everybody who ever started doing like alt comedy open mics in like weird bookstores and like underground spaces. I think any of that that started happening from the late 90s through that whole explosion of alt comedy, it's Conan. Who more than Conan is the captain of the alt comedy ship for a whole generation of people who actually were emboldened to get up and try to do it themselves. So many people from that era, I think will point to Conan as the person that, you know, Letterman was far away and brilliant, but kind of caustic. And, and Letterman Conan, seemed unapproachable. Conan oh yeah. Conan's he's always the butt of his own jokes and he, feels like one of you you know like any kid out there who ever wanted to join their college improv group conan is a person who would have just been in his he would have been the best person in your college improv group and then you look through the 2000s how much that side of things exploded and how much comedy there came to be i think i think that you could find a whole generation of people who have tried comedy or who have succeeded at doing comedy, who would point and say, um, you know, he's the reason why. First time I ever got paid a dollar to do comedy was on his show. And uh, God, was it awesome to be around that environment. He's well, he best. helped me understand comedy. I was a kid and I was spending the night at my friend John's house and we were playing video games. And when we stopped playing video games and the regular TV came on, it was late at night and it was Conan. And he was doing a parody of Ken's, Ken Burns baseball yeah. where it was Conan. It was the doc. Do you remember that? It was a documentary about his life, but it was Conan just in like the, the, yeah. the white letters in the back. And I didn't know what parody was at the time. I didn't have a concept, but I understood when I watched it, I was like, he's ma he's making, he's taking this Ken Burns thing and he's making it a joke around, you know, like a, he helped me kind of understand what comedy was and not just in that little kid oh this is funny a guy a pie in the face kind of thing he understood he got me to another level absolutely he he's the ultimate example of a smart person doing super dumb stuff in a yeah. smart way which is the best type of comedy and he also it did it it wasn't driven by you know pop culture it wasn't driven by news headlines uh letterman did a lot of absurd stuff too, you know, like, you know, the Alka-Seltzer suit and dropping the bowling ball. But, you know, you also think a top 10 list and his monologue is being so In important. The year 2000 was the thing that hooked me. Conan was the best at just, let's do a dumb bit on TV. Like the fact that one of his biggest bits was called the masturbating bear or like FedEx Pope is literally just a guy who took a FedEx box and put it on his head because it looked like a Pope hat to him and they would make fun of that. I'm like, that's a bit you would do with your idiot friends in high school and they would just do it on TV. Like put that yeah. box on your head. Now you're the FedEx Pope. Like that's yeah. something that any idiotic nerdy teenager could have thought of themselves, but they didn't Conan did. And now it's on TV. Mm -hmm. 
and he felt like one of us. He, he, part of, I think what was so infuriating about the tonight show situation is like, that's one of us. He was never going to be one of the cool kids. He was yeah. never going to be one of the people welcome to the club. He was never going to be invited to the, the back room. Everybody pat each other on the back entertainment industry, you know, circle jerk, so to speak. And uh, they proved it. They proved it by rejecting him. And I think that's why there was such an upswell of support for him and anger towards the entertainment industry. Cause it's like, yeah, you're right. Like people like us aren't fancy people who belong on TV. And we always thought Conan was one of us and he seems legit. And you now have sold him out and it makes everybody feel like, right, right. TV's for fancy people. And Conan somehow snuck through the back door it's part of why I hate TV. I mean, the man is still a millionaire and was then, so let's not let's sure. also keep and that. He, in mind. It's not like he's never going to return to TV again. But. Oh no, he's already got his next show planned. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, it's uh, he did by the standards of anyone even close. Who got who has as much stature as him? Who got done as dirty as he did in such a public way by the entertainment industry? You go that tells you everything about why we know this industry is fake and why Conan is the real deal and why so many of us owe him everything. Cause Absolutely. it was well said. Well it was said. him. It was him and Letterman and he was the one who actually felt like he would hang out with us. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Chris, we got to let you go pretty quickly, but before we go, we have a little lightning round rapid fire stand up thing we'd like to do. Oh, sure. Yeah, let's do it. All right, so what's your deal with Chris Gethard? And we are doing a stand-up themed game today. So, you know, first you lightning round, first thing that comes to your head, it's all about stand-up. So what do you eat before a stand-up gig? What do I eat before a stand-up gig? Um, the honest answer is if the if the club has something that I get uh a if I get a discount or something for free, that's what I'm eating. If not, it's probably pizza. Okay. But really, it's free. It's whatever's free or discounted. I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. Do you prefer writing on a computer or a pad and paper? A uh, pad and paper. I generally just keep like bullet points and notes. So it's actually, it's near me at all times. It's, this is my current job. Oh, nice. nice. It's always right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what comedian, name the comedian whose style most inspired you. Not necessarily their jokes, but their presence. Is there someone whose presence, the way they carry themselves on stage? You, you know, you had this nerdy guy persona. Was there somebody? I can point towards two people. One, both weird answers, admittedly. One is I always liked how Andy Kaufman, you know, as I got more and more devoted to him and I was – collecting tapes back in the 90s, seeing his actual stand-up of going, he just wants to make people uncertain of where it's going to go. Yeah. I always loved that. And I think on my best days, I do that too. Then the other person is horrific to point to as an influence. But as someone who's always based my style on storytelling, um, Cosby stylistically, and then you find out, oh my God, he, all of that was it, it's even more sin like this idea he was the one who was able to tell a story where you feel like oh i feel like i'm sitting right there like i feel like i'm sitting on the floor in front of him while i'm listening through a cassette tape at home mm -hmm. that's how accessible he makes it feel um that was always something that i remember as a kid feeling very drawn to and then 
only makes it more completely disturbing and sinister that he was that he that that's not who he was so but if that's if that is the answer to the question is a very bad a very strange person in Andy Kaufman and a very bad person in, uh, yeah that's not, that's not quite what I was, I was expecting but no I, but you can see it I yeah. think you can see how they make sense yeah I appreciate the uh, honesty I, I remember when I was a kid my dad like had these Jerry Clower tapes the country comedian Jerry Clower. Jerry was, Clower. Do, do, yeah. No, was, I can't say I'm familiar. Yeah, he was a country kind of a hee haw kind uh -huh. of. Okay. And all his, um, and he had like these different. He had a character named Maurice that he talked about all the time. But it was that kind of like Lake will be gone. We're going into yeah. some dark territory here, but it was, it. That, it was that kind of style. Got yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, what is your uh, your favorite foreign country to perform in? Oh, to perform in. Um, Wow, great question. There's a lot. Does it matter if they're English speaking? How much does that matter? Uh, I mean, I've I've generally, I haven't gone to too many places where English isn't the, the primary language. Uh, there's a part of me that feels very close to Ireland because my grandparents are from there, and I think mm -hmm. I, it was very meaningful for me to perform there. And as far as people who like like a freckled guy with a giant forehead kind of being self-deprecating to the point of self-cruelty, man, the Irish, they got me. You're one of them. Right. Yeah. They, they, they saw it. They could, and I, but I also wasn't like, I'm my grandparents were born here. So I'm Irish too. Like I got that. They did not give a shit about that at all. So they appreciated that. But the honest answer is um, Canada, which is basically their comedy scene is just so smart and they've had my back so hard. And there's been, at least three or four times in my career that I can think to when I was doing stuff where I felt like, why am I bothering to do this? And I'd go do it in Canada and they, those, they would come out of the woodwork with support. And I realized Canada has had my back so hard that maybe as an American, it's kind of a cop out to say Canada, but man, have I come to trust Canada's opinion. And, uh, well, I, it's I, hard to imagine yeah. comedians like you, having success without Canadian comedy, without SCTV and, you know, yes. all those people that came. And kids in the hall and, and a whole lot of influences, but it also is just like, when I feel like I have jokes really good, I, I make an actual point of, I, I want to make sure I go perform in a few Canadian cities because those crowds will tend to let me know which of these are a little cheap, which of these are a little, um, hacky and and most importantly i'll always try stuff in canada where i'm like i feel like i can't quite get it to work in the states and if it goes really well in canada i'll go i gotta i gotta figure out how to push it through because i feel like because canadian comedy crowds have and just for laughs the big festivals up there they have i think a certain level of sophistication in their comedy um consumerism that I really trust and where I go, if they like something, I don't give up on it because it's a challenge. And, and I mean, my whole HBO special, I was about to, I was doing a whole set about suicide and I was about to give up on it in Toronto. I did it in Toronto and they erupted. I said, Oh, maybe I won't quit on this. Interesting. Interesting. What is your favorite NYC comedy venue? Ooh, uh, there's a place in Brooklyn called union hall. That's just, Low ceilings. If you can get eighty people in there, it feels is packed. Is that uh, yes? It, it's yeah, uh, a yeah. couple of my bits in my special are in there. 
Uh, Union Hall is probably the answer as far as to me feeling like pure magic. Um, and there's a lot of great places, you know, a lot of great places in New York to do comedy and a lot of great clubs. And um, getting passed at the cellar was like something I never expected to happen in my life. That it, there's like a feather in the cap there, great place as well. But as far as my mentality and my vibe, like a place where the ceiling is this close above your head and the audience is like, you know, you're making eye contact with a person three feet away, like that Union Hall. Yeah, you made a point in your special that you liked going to places that are intimate where you can see the audience where you yeah and and and, and your talk show, the Chris Gethard show, you knew the audience was right on top of you, literally on yeah. the floor next, you know, maybe three feet, four feet from where the you and the guests were sitting. So well it's it it, it also, you know, I have a lot of roots in music. I, I I was when I was young, I was really going to tons of shows in Jersey, like local shows, and you know, people jump up on stage, people hug yeah. the singer while the singer's singing. People, Absolutely jump off the stage back into the crowd and the rest of the crowd catches them. So I've always, I've always had it in my mind that that is like, that is a live experience, not sit in a chair and order two overpriced drinks, jump up on stage and grab the person. If you love them, like that's, I, I still in, in my ideal world, part of what still motivates me to keep going is like, can I make jokes that make people feel how songs make people feel? That's like a big gear that's been turning in my head lately. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. It's an interesting way to look at it. If you're in a show that has several comedians, which slot do you prefer? That's a funny one. I mean, it's case by case, right? Like um, the main answer is I don't care. You could put me anywhere, wherever you need. Um, going a little later is never a bad thing. Um, if the show is well organized, I don't mind closing because a good booker will have a build and build. If the show is going to wind up being two and a half hours long, I don't want to be there for a tired audience. That's all like worried about getting home in time to wake up for work. Um, the real answer that a lot of comedians won't tell you that I will is oftentimes people want to go up early so they can go home. And uh, I try not to be a jerk and pull rank with that. Sometimes, you know, more veteran comedians can walk in. Can I just go up a little early? It's because they want to get out of there. I try not to do that. I like to watch the other people. The truth of the matter is like one of the things about any comedian is like there's just certain people you don't want to follow. And uh, if you get there and you realize there's somebody that's good, you go, I hope I don't have to follow that person. And then I think as you get more and more veteran, you go, I hope I get to follow that person because it's going to be so hard. But there was a stretch in New York where when Reggie Watts was a big part of the New York scene, it was like- I love Reggie Watts. Reggie Watts was incredible, but it was just, he showed up in New York and so quickly it was like, do I really have to follow Reggie Watts? That was the scariest slot was he in doing comedy. The whole like beatboxy, like- the whole come out, plug the mic into these like devices, and all of a sudden, it's like the crowd is dancing and flipping out, and there's like chanting, and and then he's doing a character in the middle of it, and everything's participatory, and then it's like, and now uh, here's Chris Gethard with some stories about growing up in New Jersey. It was that yeah. was the hardest, impossible, slot. impossible yeah. to follow Reggie, but I'll go up anywhere. I don't care, but um, you know, a lot of comedians, the truth they won't tell you because they want to look like good good guys. A lot of comedians want to go early so they can go home or go do another show. Fair, fair. Uh, and last one here, Chris, what is your nightmare audience? Ooh, I 
never blame the audience. When anytime I see an audience, anytime I see a comic go like that joke's great, this crowd sucks. I go, no, 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 no. It's never their fault. It's your job to entertain them. Uh, as far as a nightmare goes, I was once legitimately introduced at a show uh, with the phrase, hey guys, happy to tell you the buffet is now open. Also, here's Chris Gethard. And that was an audience that has just been told, hey, if you all get up and walk away, there's food somewhere else. That's a nightmare. That's a nightmare. Um, so it's a situational thing more than the kinds of people that- P are, Yes. That Audiences that are sometimes shows are organized in a way where there are active distractions introduced to it by the organizers. I was once at an I once did another show that was like this super hipstery place in Brooklyn where it was like this giant venue, but there were also like um there was like an indoor mini golf course set up in one corner of a warehouse and then like another room with all this like installed like visual art with lighting and neon and stuff. And it's like I get that you're trying to build like a cool art um experiential immersive event at this warehouse in Brooklyn. But if you're going to invite comedians, we probably shouldn't have an active mini golf course in the middle of the crowd. So a lot of it's that situational thing where you go, the, the nightmare audience is the one who has been invited to be distracted by other stuff. Cause then you've been handicapped. So it's when there's stuff there, you know, it's like, or even at a bar show, if you're at a bar show and they won't turn the TV off and there's a playoff game on, you know, or people shooting pool would be annoying too. video. I was just going to say video games, you know, like now I've got to be not just able to keep their interest, but keep their interest more than, uh, they got street fighter too. We all loved that mm. in the nineties. Do you think they're not going to, they're not going to peek to see if Chun-Li is beating E Honda while I'm doing my exposition. So the nightmare audience is the one that's been actively distracted. And I, I think food is, um, yeah, I think that that, I th that, that was a nightmare that comes to mind for me immediately. Ladies and gentlemen, the buffet is open. Also, uh, yeah, let's welcome Chris Gethard. Like, are you kidding me? They all literally just stood up and turned their backs to me to go scoop sounds, Swedish meatballs onto their plate. Yeah, so it sounds horrible. It sounds horrible. Yeah. But it's always the comedian's fault, man. Anytime you see a comedian, blame the crowd. They're either doing something too easy with like this crowd sucks, fuck you guys, or they're convinced that that's the truth and it never is. An audience that has paid money to be entertained, it's never their fault if they're not entertained. That's our fault. That's the comedian's fault. So understand that. Well, we got to go, Chris. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, it's a uh, joy. I, I really enjoyed talking to you and I really enjoyed talking about comedy in general from, from one of the pros. So. Thanks. I do my best. Not everybody likes my stuff, but some people do. So it feels good to talk about it. Thanks for letting me be part of it. Absolutely. So uh, we'll talk to you later. Have a great summer. Have a great rest of the summer. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. That was Chris Gethard. His new comedy special, Half My Life, is out now on Amazon Prime and a bunch of other platforms. Uh, that'll be it for me. We will be back the week after next with Idris. Not uh, not uh, Idris Elba, the, uh, the 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 musician Idris, uh, but if Idris Elba wants to come on the show, we will uh, gladly accommodate him. So, until then, we'll see you later. <laughs>